one of the constant factors and problems that the New Testament early first century Christians faced was the transition that was taking place between the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and the New Covenant or the New Testament. And understand that every one of the first Christians were first Jewish. The gospel went first to the Jews. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon that 120 group that was there meeting in the upper room, and then the 3,000 that were saved that same day, every single one of those early believers were Jewish. And it was like that for a season during that initial outpouring while the gospel was spreading throughout Jerusalem. And so Judaism was what was the cultural and national identity of every first century Christian, at least in that initial outpouring. And and that presented in and of itself some challenges. And, And that was that Judaism was so much more than just religion. It was life. If you were a Jew, especially a Jew living in Jerusalem, it was everything that you were. It drove the government. It drove your family. It drove your identity. It drove your conscience. It drove the, the, the actions and the things that you did. Somewhere connected to everything that you did in life was the fact that you were Jewish. And with that then, all of the rituals, all of the traditions, all of the laws, every holiday was centered around those customs and what they were. And here now, all of a sudden, you have this whole group of New Testament believers that were coming out of Judaism. And they are brought into this entire new covenant that is a break or a separation from everything that they once were. And it didn't take long for that break to begin to present some kinds of conflicts in the lives of those people. First of all, just within themselves. The New Testament, totally new. Well, does God want me to continue keeping the customs that were of the law under the old covenant? The law was that the wages of sin is death. But the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. So where does everything that I was meet with everything that I am now? And so there was a conflict internally. There was also a bigger conflict when it came to family. If one member or a few members of a family or a household came to Christ and they were now making a different profession and standing upon a different belief than all the members of their household that they had known for years, that would present quite a conflict. Those of us that have been born again as Gentiles understand what that feels like. When we give our lives to Christ and our families don't understand, whether it be that we're coming out of the world or maybe we're coming out of a, a different religious system or one that is, that is Christian in name but is different from being born again, We understand what that feels like. There's a conflict that arises. For them, probably more so than for us, there was a conflict also in society because society was driven by Judaism. And so now these Christians that were in a way saying, we don't put the emphasis on Moses that we once did, and we're putting our faith and trust in Christ who is rejected by society as a whole, 
there was conflict then between them and the government or them and society. And so what happened is that there was this pressure that was on the, the, the shoulders, if you would, of these first century Jewish Christians that came from their Jewish custom or background. And over time, as persecution arose from it, and then even later on as the Judaizers, as they were called, these Jewish men that called themselves Christians that were bent on bringing people back under the banner of Moses or Judaism, as that pressure grew, some of the Hebrew Christians began to stumble. Some of them began to slide back away from Christ and to come back under what was the old covenant that we're going to learn as we go through Hebrews, absolutely cannot save. There were others that were not completely going back under it, but they were supplementing or blending or mixing the two, taking Christ by name, but blending it with the customs of the Old Testament and making salvation to be faith in Christ with, the works of the law, circumcision, keeping the feasts, keeping the holy days, keeping Sabbath, and, and blending those two things and making the gospel a gospel of faith and works. And there was another group of people that was even in greater danger than the ones that were sliding or the ones that were blending. And that was the group of Jews that were intrigued by Christ that liked the teachings that were given concerning Christ, that were drawn to the gospel, but could never come past the edge of giving their lives to him. They came right up to the point of believing, but couldn't break with Judaism enough to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of the book of Hebrews and why it was written was to talk to those Jewish believers that were carrying that pressure or feeling the pressure or the weight of being tempted to come back under the rituals of Moses for whatever the pressure was, or also it was to talk to those Jewish Christians or Jewish people that had come right to the edge but failed to make a profession. And the book itself contains a warning of the cost of sliding back under that system. Now, I'm struck with the, the, the reality, that, and I, I mentioned this just this past Sunday, that God never gives a warning that isn't essential. He doesn't speak just for the sake of hearing his voice. If God tells a group of people something or an individual, it's because that group or individual needs to hear the message that God is giving. Otherwise, he doesn't give it. And so if this potential slip or this potential blending, or this potential to not quite make it over the bar and put the faith in Christ. If it didn't matter, then the book of Hebrews wouldn't need to be written. But it does matter. And it matters not just to Jews, but it matters also to Gentiles. Anytime a Christian, someone who's made a profession of faith, walks away from that Christian profession for the sake of coming back under a religious system or form that they held prior to coming to Christ, and they do that because they need a sense of security that goes beyond just simple faith alone, then that person has done something that's extremely dangerous. 
And if that warning wasn't needed, then there would be no Galatians because that's what was happening to the Galatians. If that warning wasn't needed, there would be no Hebrews because that's the warning that goes forth to the Hebrews. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone and by nothing else. You can't add something to it. You can't mix and blend something with it for the sake of security. It is Jesus alone or it is nothing. Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't say I was part of it. And he didn't say he was one of many. He said, I singularly am the way to salvation. And no one comes to the Father but through me. You say, well, if that's the case, if that's the purpose of the book of Hebrews, then why in a Gentile nation, in a Gentile period, to a group of people that are almost probably all exclusively Gentile in background, why would we study the book of Hebrews? Two reasons. Number one, because it presents to us the superiority of Jesus Christ over anything and everything that could ever be or ever will be called God or that relates to God. And it presents him to us in a way that makes him so clear and so plain and so big that it compels us to put our full and total trust in him. And second of all, because whether we're Jewish or not, every one of us here came out of something. And from time to time, every one of us can feel the pressure to revert back to what it is that we came out of and walk away from Christ, even if it means creating distance between ourselves and him. And the book of Hebrews serves as a reminder to every one of us of the essentialness of his lordship constantly in our lives and of our complete faith and trust being placed in him. And so the book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ to us. The outline of the book is actually incredibly simple. It's, almost, it's written so logically. It is for the logical mind, though some of the things are technical and some of the things take some background to understand the nuts and bolts of how they work. The book is laid out in such a systematic form. And what the author of Hebrews does is he takes 10 chapters, chapters 1 through 10, and he presents Jesus Christ side by side in contrast to seven elements of Old Testament worship of God. First of all, he takes the prophets that were very important in the Old Testament, and they are even to us, and he holds them next to Jesus and shows how Jesus is superior. Then he takes the angels in chapters 2 and 3, huge to the Jews, and he shows how Jesus is superior over the angels. Then he takes Moses, then Joshua and the promised land, then the priesthood, then the temple and its rituals, and then the old covenant as a whole. In each of those things, he holds side by side with Jesus and he shows and proves that Jesus Christ is far superior to any of those other things, those things being partial and foreshadowing and Jesus being the fulfillment and the completeness of all things pertaining to God. And then the second half of the, or the second part of the outline is chapters 11 through 13, which presents to us the gospel, that we stand saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so you have the hall of faith, that famous chapter, Hebrews 11, where it talks about how everyone that ever has been saved or will be saved is saved by grace through faith, not by their works. And then uh, 
our life and position as it relates to that in chapters 12 and 13. And that's where then uh, the, the writer of Hebrews signs off. Now, who wrote the book of Hebrews? I believe that there will be in heaven after the rapture a moment where there will be a contest and all of the people who got this right will be given some kind of award. Maybe God will just say 50 points for all of you who, who guessed correctly who wrote the book of Hebrews. The answer is we have absolutely no idea at all who wrote the book. We don't know. Now, most people just assume that it was Paul because of his background and because of his mind and because of his passion for these things. And because he wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, you'll hear most pastors just say, Paul says this in Hebrews. You know, I don't think it was Paul. Here's why. And it could be. And I won't spend too much time here. This is just for fun. But in chapter two of the book of Hebrews, there's one verse, I think it's in uh, verse three, when, when the writer of Hebrews talks about the apostles. And he says that the things concerning Christ were given to us by those who heard him. Paul would never say that because Paul says in Galatians, he says that no one taught me the gospel. I learned it from Jesus Christ myself. And so the author of Hebrews owns the fact that he was a disciple of one of the apostles. That's as far as we can go with it. And we know it wasn't Timothy because Timothy is mentioned uh, not as the author in the later chapters of the book. And so take it, run with it, make your guess, file it in heaven. And when we get there, maybe you'll be right you know, in terms of who it is. But I will say this concerning the authorship of Hebrews. The only book in the Bible, and, and I say this reverently and, you know, somewhat, you know, just as a, as a teacher and not as, you know, a prophet or anything, there, there's probably only one other book in the Bible that carries the same weight of inspiration as Hebrews, and that would be the book of Revelation. Now, we know that every scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every verse of the Bible is God-breathed. Not one bit of it is less inspired than another. But there are portions of scripture where it is more evident that it is inspired by God. And Hebrews is one of those books. When you see the things that are written and recorded and the, the way that they are explained and the things that are unlocked, the mysteries of the Old Testament, the signature of God is all over it. So human authorship becomes incredibly irrelevant because it's eclipsed by the authorship of God. And so we don't know who wrote it. Now, Verses one through three, that's as far as we'll go tonight, gives to us the first thing that the author of Hebrews holds up. And what he does in these three verses is two things. Very simply, is he presents to us who Jesus is, and then secondly, why he is superior to the Old Testament prophets. And so we begin in chapter one, verse one. It says God. That's a great way, isn't it, to start? In fact... On the, on the note of authorship, it was customary in Old Testament, or I'm sorry, in uh, those days, the early church days, that when you would write a letter, you wouldn't sign your name at the end of it like we do in our culture, but you would address yourself at the very beginning. We see that in Paul's letters, don't we? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God too. And then he goes on. He does that over and over and over again. So I love the fact that the first word in the book of Hebrews is God. God wrote it. God, and here's what God did, who at sundry times 
and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. And so God, very initially in this letter, this book is put forth to us as one who speaks. That our God is a speaking God. And what that means when we realize it and think about it for just a minute is that our God is not impersonal. He's not lifeless. He's not withdrawn. He's not distant. He doesn't remain silent. But he's a God that wants things to be heard and wants things to be known by his creation. What is it that he wants us to know? He wants us to know him. He doesn't want us to guess. He doesn't want us to grope in darkness and try to figure it out. He doesn't care about our philosophies or our ideas about who he is or what he thinks, but he wants us to hear from his own mouth who he is. He wants to reveal himself to us. Now, the fact that he speaks, and it is a fact that God speaks, what that means is that every one of us has then the faculty to be able to hear him. If God is a speaking God and he made us in his image, and he speaks to us, then he's given every one of us the ability to hear him. It is in man to hear and to know him. Jesus said in John chapter 10, that famous chapter where he calls himself the good shepherd. He says in that chapter three times that his people will hear his voice. He says, first, they'll hear my voice. Then he says, they know my voice. And then again, he follows it by saying, they will hear my voice. Three times tripled in that chapter. It is the will of God for every one of his people, in fact, every person that's ever been made to hear his voice. Now, God doesn't often speak out audibly. In fact, I've been walking with him for 17 years and I can very definitely say I've heard him, but I can very also definitely say I have never heard an audible voice come from God. And I've never met anybody that has either. So that means that our God has the ability to speak and give us the ability to hear without him uttering a word audibly or using our audible senses as the medium through which we hear him. He speaks in ways that gets the message across to us without using the ways that we speak to one another. He's a speaking God. So how does he speak? Well, it says here that in the Old Testament, In old times, in times past, as it says, sundry times, and in diverse ways, what it literally means is fragmented parts and in various ways that God spoke in times past through the prophets. And so what the author is telling us is that the speech of God or the message of God in the old covenant was always partial and always progressive. He would give little bits of the message concerning himself to individual prophets in order for them to proclaim it to others, but he would do it a piece at a time as it was necessary. The revelation was sure, but it was progressive. To Adam, God gave the clue or the message that his son would come into the world by the seed of the woman. It was a prophecy that Jesus, when he would come, would be virgin born. And so God letting Adam know that there was a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, and that it would come through a virgin birth. But it was just a fragment, a small part 
of who God is and what he would do and why he would do it. That little piece given to Adam. To Abraham, it was given that it would be in the manner of the father offering a son and that it would be through his family. But that's as far as it went. To Jacob, it was given that it would be through the tribe of Judah that the king, the the lion of the tribe of Judah would come into the world. To Moses, the revelation of God's holiness and of his ways and of his person, but a little bit, a little bit at a time and so on and so forth, all the way through the prophets, God giving fragmented parts at various times to different prophets according to the need. He also did it in various ways. Sometimes he would do it through dreams, sometimes through visions, sometimes through impulses that they would have, sometimes through real life circumstances that those prophets or people were going through, wherein God would then take their situation and circumstance and say, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is a picture of what's to come or a picture of my heart towards humanity. Sometimes it would come through angels speaking or appearing. Sometimes through experiences that they would have that would be um, out of the ordinary. But in various fragmented ways at various times, God would communicate in times past through the prophet. But, he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us, not through the prophets, but through his Son. And if you're taking notes here tonight, there are three ways in which the Son of God is highly exalted over the prophets in the message that he brings to us from God. And the first, the first way is this, is that the prophets gave to us a fragmented revelation of God, but Jesus gives us the total picture. They gave parts at various times, but Jesus gives the whole thing all at once. Notice the distinction that's made right there. He says that in times past, that's that which was in the old, that's how God re- revealed himself in the Old Testament through the prophets. But now, in these last days, there's been a break and a separation, and that which is to be from this time forward is something that's completely different. That was partial, but through the Son, it will be absolutely complete. He's done it in his son. Now understand this, that the purpose of God's speech, whether it was then or now, the purpose of that speech is God to reveal who he is to man and to reveal his plan of salvation for man. So what is the revelation that God gave to us through Christ? It's summarized by the apostle John in John chapter 1, the opening verses of his gospel. Listen to what John writes. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him. Notice that he personifies the Word, makes him a person. In a minute, we're going to find out who that person is. He says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then in verse 10 of the same chapter. He, that is the living word, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. 
But as many as received him, the living word, to them gave he power or authority or the right to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name, which were born not of blood, not physical, nor of the will of the flesh, it didn't originate in the heart or mind of man, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. So who is the living word that created all things that was God? It was Jesus, the Son of God. He became flesh and dwelt among us, saying that he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness... Now listen, because here's what Hebrews 1 is telling us. Of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father. He has, and listen to the word, declared him. Do you see it? that God spoke to the world in his son. And the declaration that was made through Jesus in his coming was this is who God is. The word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us in order that we might see it, observe it, hear it, know it, and receive the declaration. And it is a total declaration that is given. And here's what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that everything that there is to know about God can be found in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verses uh, 7 through 10, John writes, quoting Jesus specifically, he says, as Jesus speaks to Philip, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from henceforth, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. And Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. He that has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. If you want to know what he thinks, listen to Jesus Christ. If you want to know his nature, then observe Jesus and the nature of him. If you want to know how God feels about something, then ask, how does Jesus feel about it? And what does he have to say? Everything that there is to know about God is revealed in Christ and there will never be any further revelation. Notice in Hebrews chapter 1 again, he says, He has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The word infers finality, that there's nothing further to be given. There's no more revelation to be had. There's no prophet that will come on the scene in another way and give us another fragment at another time. All that will be revealed has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so the prophets were partial in their revelation, 
but Jesus is complete. And therefore, Jesus is superior to the prophets. And so for a Hebrew who put their faith in the words of the prophets, or for a Hebrew that would simply ascribe that Jesus was nothing more than a prophet, what the author of Hebrews is presenting before us tonight and before them in his writing is that Jesus is way more than a prophet. They were partial. He is complete. The second way that the author of Hebrews presents Jesus as being triumphant or superior over the prophets is in very simply this, is that Jesus was not a prophet, but rather he was the son. Notice again what the author of Hebrews says. He says that God spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, and more accurately it would be in the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us in his son. He doesn't say in the prophet Jesus, making him one of them, but he puts him in a whole separate category of his own, the son of God, that Jesus was the son. And that was the title that he would have from the very beginning. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced the birth of Jesus, he said that you will conceive and that holy child that was in you will be of the Holy Ghost and he shall be called the son of God. In Luke chapter 3, when Jesus was 30 years old and he was baptized in the Jordan River and coming up out of the water, it says that the heavens were open and that the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove and a voice came out from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God not calling Jesus a prophet, but calling him his son. In Matthew chapter 17 Verse 5, again, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. God interrupts Peter, a passage that we'll look at again in just a moment. And he says to Peter, he says, this is my son, hear ye him. Jesus had no problem calling himself that in John chapter 3, verse 18, saying that to whom the son is revealed, speaking of himself as the son, In John chapter 8, verse 36, again, Jesus declaring himself to be the Son, says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so Jesus was the Son. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, it was that episode where he took them up into a high mountain. It's Matthew chapter 17. And while he was there up on the mountain with them, it says that he was changed or transfigured in front of them. And everything that was on the inside that was hidden by his bodily form was suddenly exposed. And there was a light that was so bright it couldn't be looked at by those that were there, Peter, James, and John. And Peter, who was kind of in a stupor and trying to interpret what was going on, he begins to speak. And as he begins to speak, he says to Jesus, he says, Lord, It is good for us to be here. And then he makes a great yet stupid suggestion. He says, let's build three tabernacles, three churches, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the Bible tells us that while he yet spoke, meaning he didn't even finish communicating the thought, God interrupted Peter and said, this is my son. When a man tried to put Jesus Christ on the same level as Moses or a prophet, God got upset. And there is a lack of harmony in heaven 
when someone tries to make Jesus something less than what he is. Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus is the son. And he is venerated in heaven that way. He's exalted by his father that way. And that's who he is. And that's who he will always be. Jesus is the son of God. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, uh, when they talk about Jesus, that they have a lot of respect for him, that they believe that he was a prophet. Sometimes other religions will profess a belief in Jesus and they'll call him a prophet and they'll say, well, we believe that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was not a prophet. And to make Jesus a prophet is to blaspheme his name because it's not who he is. It's to make God less than God. And Jesus was in every way God. And so the second way in which Jesus is higher than the prophets is that he was not a prophet, but rather he was the son. The third way that the writer of Hebrews presents Jesus as being superior or better than the prophets was in his role. The role of the prophets is that they were messengers in one way or another to convey a particular point that God wanted to make to a generation or to a people at a particular time. That was the mission of the prophets. But Jesus' role, as it's expounded here in in verse uh, 2 and then into verse 3, is a completely separate and altogether higher role than that which any prophet ever had. What he gives to us in the remainder of these two verses here are seven aspects of the role of Jesus Christ that he plays in humanity and in the universe and in in the order of God's uh, uh, things that make him who he is. Notice what he says concerning Jesus. He says in verse two again, he says, he has in these last days spoken unto us in his son, and then number one, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, we know that Jesus is God. As we looked at John chapter one, verse one, we saw it said that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In verse 14, that same word became flesh, meaning that Jesus who came in the flesh was altogether God, making God and Christ one. But at the same time, the mystery is that they are still yet distinct in some way. They are separate, but yet they are one. Now there's a third person that makes up what we call the triune Godhead, that is the person of the Holy Spirit. Way too technical to try to explain all of that tonight. But by Jesus being called the heir of all things, we understand that he is one with God, but we also understand that he is in some way separate. It tells us in um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says that he, that is God, has put all things under his feet, that is Christ. So the Father has put all things under the feet of the Son and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him which filleth all in all. In Philippians, it said this way, in Philippians chapter two, verse nine, it says, wherefore God also has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the Colossians, the Apostle Paul would write it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, concerning Jesus. He says that he, Jesus, is before all things. That is, he is preeminent over all things. And by him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, 
who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And so God the Father has appointed Jesus the Son, heir of all things. What does that mean? It means that he owns everything. It means if you play a game of Monopoly with Jesus, at the end of the game, he has it all. He has the properties. He has the money. He owns every bit of it. He owns the souls, the people, every compartment, every sphere, every spirit, every principality, everything that there is that exists belongs to Jesus Christ. And the author here makes that known, that he is the heir of all things. You say, that's kind of, you know, kind of forth putting. Why is that essential information? I mean, is that like God, like saying, this is mine, don't touch it. <laughs> you think that's yours? It's actually mine. Mine, all is mine. That's mine, like a child, right? No, 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 no. That's not why God tells us that he owns all things. I want you to think about this for just one minute and understand it in the lens or through the lens of who we are here tonight. If we were God's servants or if we were just God's people in a generic sense, in some way that we belong to him and that we were going to be citizens in his kingdom and that we would call him king and be under his, his lordship, then, then that would be one thing and it would mean one thing. But what we are is something altogether different than that. We are the bride of Christ. We have been espoused to one husband. The spirit and the bride say come. Paul said concerning marriage, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And when there is a marriage, and God is the author of the institution of marriage, two become one. And if we are linked with him in marriage, then we are joint heirs with him. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians. And so what that means is he is the heir of all things, and we are his bride. Then through that relationship of marriage and unity with Christ, we are heirs with him of the same thing. That's an incredibly powerful truth. Just think about that and meditate on it. It says that he is the heir of all things. The second thing concerning his role, it says by whom also he made the worlds. That is the role of the son in creation itself. In John chapter one, verse 10, again, we already read uh, that verse, but I'll read it again. It says that he was in the world and the world was made by him. Jesus played that part of creation and that he's the one that made it. In Colossians chapter one, verse 16. Paul writes and he says this, he says, for by him, that is Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Anytime someone wants to try to tell you that Jesus isn't God, these are the verses that you take them to and you say, well, when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, who was God that created it? You take them to the New Testament book of Colossians or John chapter one and you say, well, if Jesus is the one who created all things, no matter what they were, then who does that make him? And that should end the argument right there. Somehow it doesn't, but it should. It says, by whom he also made the worlds, the role of the son in creation. The third element of his role that's given to us by the author of Hebrews that sets him above the prophets is that he says in verse three, 
concerning his person, he says, who being the brightness of his glory. To say it another way, you could say to be the visible portion of the light that is God. The Bible tells us that God is light and that in him is no darkness at all. But the Bible also says that no man has seen God at any time, that he dwells in inapproachable light. So what the author of Hebrews is telling us here concerning Christ is that he is the brightness or that which can be visibly seen concerning the light of God. Now, I'm not a physicist nor a chemist, but what I understand is that most of the light that we enjoy is invisible to the naked eye. We cannot see the wavelengths that make up light as it is. There is a small spectrum that is visible to the human eye, but most light is invisible to us. It has to reflect off something or bounce off of something in order for us to observe it or in order for us to understand it. That's how we interpret light. If we look at the sun, it's way too bright for us to try to comprehend. We can't stare right into it. It would burn out our eyes. We enjoy the effulgence of it, but we can't look directly at it. It's, 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 a, it's a mass that's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our capacity to view but if you were to take a prism and you were to hold it up into a direct ray or beam of the sun, the casting or the dividing of that light through the prism would cast all the various hues and colors of that one solid light of the sun upon all the walls of the room. And so what a prism would do is that it would take that light that's coming that cannot be seen and it would then divide it in such a way that it then can be seen. It would be divided and observable and organized and then enjoyed. And what he's saying here is that that was Jesus is. Jesus is the portion of God that cannot be seen, but that can be. He divides the light that we can't comprehend and he divides it, organizes it and puts it back together that we might understand what it is that we're looking at, the brightness of his glory. He goes on then to say that he is also the express image of his person. Now, the idea behind an image or the express image would be that of a signet ring being pressed into hot wax. That's how they would give their, their signature in those days. There would be a drop of hot wax and then the signet ring would be pressed into it. And that would be the evidence that that person was signing off or agreeing to it. And what he's saying here is that he is the express image of his person, that if God is the mark, then Jesus is what is seen. Jesus is the express image of that seal that it is. It tells us again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the express image of his person, that who he is the image of the invisible God. And so Jesus is what we can see of the invisible God. And then he says in verse um, three also, number five concerning the role of the son. And I love this. It says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Now the idea here is that he is the sustainer of all things. That's what that word means where it says upholding, that he is the one that sustains all all things, and he keeps them together by the word of his power. Everything that is together is together because of him. Again, I told you earlier that I'm not a physicist. I'm not, though I can understand certain concepts. 
there is a law called gravity that what goes up, what? Okay, so we all are not physicists, but we can understand certain things, right? There's another law called Coulomb's Law of Electricity. You might not know what it is, but you certainly know what it is. And what that law is, is that like charges repel. We all experience this with a magnet. If you take the positive and the negative end of a magnet, opposite charges, and you put them close to each other, they attract. But if you take the positive side of a magnet and another positive, and you try to press them together, unless it's a weak magnet or you're very strong, you're not able to do it because they repel, they resist each other. And that's a law that carries not just with magnets, but with anything that has a charge. Positively charged things repel, and opposite charges attract. That's just the way God made things to be. Well, herein is a great mystery. Everything that is in this room that makes up matter, the chair that you're sitting in or the Bible that you're holding in your hand or the clothing that you're wearing, is made up of atoms, the basic building block that is all matter. And inside the atom, if you were to look at it under an electron microscope, the atom consists of the nucleus at the very core and then an electron or number of electrons that are circulating around that nucleus on the outside and then a couple of other various parts. But understand this. Don't, you can come back to the surface a little bit. Inside the nucleus of that atom, there is a series, a bunch of positively charged protons that are inside of it. And what baffles scientists is why those protons stay in the center of the nucleus of that atom, because they're all positively charged. And Coulomb's law is that all of those protons should be repelling from each other. They should be resisting each other, but they don't. And so the scientists and all of their genius came up with a, a, a term, very scientific, to explain why the protons don't re repel from each other. They call it atomic glue. And then they realized that that wasn't intelligent enough, so they, call, they changed the name, and now they call it nuclear force, that there's a nuclear force that is stronger than the electromagnetic force that would cause them otherwise to repel. But they can't explain why the positive charges in the middle of an atom stay together, because it doesn't make sense. Now, if you bombard the nucleus of an atom with slow-moving, highly enriched uranium particles, you can force those protons to let go. And do you know what happens when they do? Kablamo. <laughs> right. Nuclear fission. It's ugly. We've all seen videos of it. We've heard stories of it. We don't like nuclear fission because we understand that the energy with which those protons are resisting each other is an energy that has the power to destroy cities, towns, countries, and you know, in the world, essentially. That's the amount of energy with which those protons are seeking to get away from each other. And the question is, what is holding it together? You know what the answer is? Jesus. That's the answer. Because it says he upholds or sustains all things by the word of his power. Now understand this. That if those protons stay together, then they are being held together by a force that exceeds the force of resistance. Do you understand? The hand of Christ holding together what he's holding together is stronger than the power of a nuclear bomb. 
And he's the one that's upholding not just the universe, the atoms and the elements, but he's the one that upholds our lives. He's the one that upholds our minds. He's the one that keeps our marriages together. He's the one that keeps our families together. He's the one that keeps us from flying off the deep end. He holds all things together by the word of his power. Now one day, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, that one day all of the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Peter didn't know he was a nuclear scientist, what he was. One day, God is going to utter the words, let go. And every atom on the planet is just going to do what it would do by nature otherwise. And the whole thing melts away. But in the meantime, he's holding it together. He can be trusted with everything that we are because he upholds it by the word of his power. He's the sustainer. He goes on to say, not only is he the sustainer of all things, but then number six, he says, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Father. The sixth thing concerning the role of Jesus Christ that sets him above the prophets, high above them, is that he purged our sins by himself. Notice that word, by himself. He didn't have help. He didn't need help. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't take our best efforts to try to reform ourselves. It isn't our efforts or our sorrow or our repentance. None of that helps him take away our sins. It isn't the law. It isn't Moses. It isn't deeds of righteousness that outweigh deeds of evil. It is Jesus Christ and him alone by himself that purged our sins. He went to the cross alone. He bore our sins alone. That's who he is. It's what he did. Notice the word purged. The word purged means taken out. The word in the Greek is catharizo. Anybody in here ever have a catheter? I have. You know what a catheter does? It removes waste. It takes things that the body cannot use or that are harmful to the body and it removes them from the body. And that's what Jesus did concerning our sins. He purged them. He catheterized. He removed it. Now, why is that significant? Because everything that ever was in the Old Testament that was an offering or a sacrifice or an atonement couldn't purge a person of their sins. It could cover them. It could wash them just like you could wash a pig, but it couldn't take them away. Something had to be done to take sin out of humanity. And there was no law, there was no priest or prophet, there was no offering. There was no sacrifice, whether it be a lamb or a bull, a goat or a dove, nothing could take sin out of man. But Jesus did, and he did it by himself. And there was no one else that ever could. And because of that, the seventh thing that the author writes here in closing of this passage and of our study that Jesus did that sets him above the prophets is that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. Whenever you see that in the Bible of someone sitting down, it, is always, it always signifies the finishing of work, that the work is finished. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? He said, it is finished. He didn't say, that's a good start. Now let's see what you can do with it. I've given you a new beginning. Now don't mess it up again. That's not what he said. He said, it is finished. To die. 
that the debt of your sin has been paid in full to the point where he sat down. Now, why is that so important that, that we bring that out and notice that that word is there? Why is it used that the Holy Ghost puts it there? Here's why. Because under the old covenant and under the religious system of the Jews, they could never sit. Do you know that of all the articles of furniture that existed within the holy place, one of the things that was not there and never was was a chair? There was no place to sit inside the Holy of Holies because the work would never be finished. The high priest would always have to come back. There would always be another offering for another year because it was impossible that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away sin. But when Jesus went into the holy place with his own blood, sin was purged once and forever and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And we are seated in him meaning that our sins by Christ have been cast as far as the east is from the west. And there is nothing more to be done. He is sufficient to sit when no one else could sit. And so Jesus is better than the prophets. There's no comparison between Jesus and anything else. And for any one of us to move away from Jesus in any way, whether it be because of something you know, that we've given ourselves to in our old life, or to revert back to a tradition of an old religious system that we were a part of, to move away from Jesus is to trade what is the best thing and what is sufficient for something that is less and something that is not. It's always a move that makes things worse. To add something to Jesus, to, to add him to some work of your own design, is to move your life out of harmony with heaven, to say that Jesus is not enough to save me from my sins or to sustain my life or for me to place my trust in, that I've got to do something as well. It's to come out of harmony with God. And the worst thing that a person could ever do is to come right up to the edge of salvation, to listen, to enjoy, but to never surrender and give their life to God. Jesus is better. His position as God the Son incarnate because of his fullness and the revelation that he is and because of the role that he plays in creation and in sustaining and in redemption and because he is seated in a place where no one else can sit. And he did that on behalf of us. Jesus cannot ever be compared with anything else. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we, um, as we look into this incredible window into eternity. And we see there a Savior. And we understand who He is. And we see a little bit more of a glimpse into the person of our God and of your heart towards us. And we ask tonight, Lord, as these things sink past the boundaries of our minds and down into our hearts, that by your Holy Spirit, you would impart to us a greater appreciation and love for you who first loved us. We thank you for all that you are. We thank you that we sit here tonight knowing you, not knowing about you, not having facts alone, but that we know you because of what's been revealed to us through Christ. And as all of these things are true in a generic sense, we believe them tonight to be true personally for us as well. And so we make it our prayer. 
O Lord, that you would be the superior and supreme one in our hearts and lives. That you would uphold what's been committed to you. And that we would remain seated in you until you come. Thank you, Lord, for this word. As we worship you, Lord, as we sing this last song, may our hearts be filled with gratitude and praise because of who you are. And with one voice and one heart, we give you thanks for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.